Hi, this is Steve Nerlick, and this is Steve's PhD, Episode 8, Writing Again. So, since last episode, I've gotten a journal article published, in the Journal of Higher Education Policy and Management, which is not to be confused with the Journal of Higher Education Management and Policy. Seriously. Since it's an education publication, rather than a science publication, I'm not the first in a list of 20 collaborators, it's just me. And if I can manage two or three of these, I can probably package up all that content, and with a bit of embellishment, call it my PhD thesis, which is what is known as thesis by publication. I am pretty sure I've said on a previous episode that to do a PhD, you have to write, write, and then write some more. Sure, you have to read a lot too, because otherwise you wouldn't have much to write about. But it's the writing that really matters. Even if it's nothing more than a summary of what you just read, say, Smith 2012 argues that high precipitation characterises flat Spanish landscapes. Well, okay, write it down. Otherwise, you will carry that idea around in your head for maybe four or five days until it dissolves away within the general milieu of life. Particularly if it's a life that is filled with reading journal articles. Writing a 5,000-word journal article, at least in my experience, involves writing about 30,000 words full of half-formed thoughts and half-assed arguments, most of which disappear, after a short and unhappy life, via the delete key. If it was 30 years ago, there would have been lots of crumpled balls of paper tossed into a waste bin, like you sometimes see in movies about famous writers. Speaking of which, Roald Dahl once wrote about how he started his writing life when a magazine editor suggested he write up his early life experiences as a fighter pilot. Dahl wrote up a rough draft and sent it on to that editor to see if he was on the right track, but when he rang up to check, the editor had already published his rough draft in a magazine called The New Yorker. I believe this story is utter bollocks, written by one of the world's great short fiction writers. I mean, I can believe Dahl wrote the story, and I can believe that it got published in the New Yorker, but you know when a rough draft is a rough draft. Also, the real world is not populated by editors that say, oh, we didn't want to bother you again, so we published it yesterday. Anyway, if you do want to do a PhD, you're probably going to have to write a lot of stuff, and you will probably end up throwing most of that stuff away. In the world of tinned salmon, it's the fish you reject that makes your fish the best. In the world of PhDs, you have to go through a process of working up ideas and subsequently rejecting most of them, but the few that remain might actually hold water. And this is why, even though I may be halfway through my PhD now, I really have only just started. Much of the time I've spent up to now 
has involved working through a mountain of totally dumbass ideas. Such filtering of dumbass ideas, that is, the elimination of them, arises from a combination of my own morning-after reactions of what the b- was I thinking, the Spock-like eyebrow raise of my supervisor after showing her a rough draft, and the long pauses and throat clearing I receive after presenting my stuff at a conference. This mixture of self-recrimination and public humiliation does seem to have brought me to a point where I really do have a PhD project. And I can prove it. There's an Australian thing called a three-minute thesis, where you have to summarise what you were doing in your PhD down to a three-minute presentation without slides. Want to hear mine? And a one, a two, a three. My thesis is on the value of an international study experience for Australian tertiary students now and in the future. Promotional literature that encourages Australian students to study overseas tells them that they will gain, quote-unquote, global competence. But perhaps we need to consider whether an Australian undergraduate studying high-energy particle physics in Geneva, a PhD student studying hominid fossils in Kenya, or a vocational student studying hospitality in Beijing will really gain an equal and generic dose of this thing we call global competence. Arguably, global competence is whatever arts and social science students from high socio-economic backgrounds gain from study abroad, because they are by far the dominant demographic that studies overseas. To explore the diversity of potential gains from studying overseas, I am focusing on one currently underrepresented cohort, STEM students. That's science, technology, engineering and mathematics. The STEM graduate workforce, the scientists, engineers and technology innovators, are highly dependent on international collaboration. Hence, it is puzzling that STEM undergraduates are quite underrepresented in the overseas study numbers. Could it be that no one has told them what kind of global competence might be useful for them? My research will investigate through survey methods and interviews with STEM students and their prospective employers just what is the potential value to be gained from overseas studies for STEM students, both in undergraduate coursework and in postgraduate research. I will also investigate whether the benefits of studying overseas are time-related. Does it carry the same value today that it did 30 years ago, before we had internet services, which have since connected the world in so many new and unprecedented ways? And overall, I hope to challenge the notion that global competence is a one-size-fits-all concept. To quote the Brazilian theorist Paulo Freire, education is the means by which men and women learn to participate in the transformation of the world. And to that, I would add, how they go about making that transformation 
is entirely dependent upon who they are and what they study. And thanks me. There's already bits of that presentation that I don't like, and I've already made those changes in some draft notes towards publication number two, which, as usual, I wrote down on a notepad, sitting in a bar, alongside a Diet Coke and a bowl of chips. You know, there's times when I imagine I might actually miss all this when it's all over. Steve Nerlich, PhD Candidate. Hi folks, it's another one of these afterword thingies. I notice we've been big in Israel for the last few weeks. So, Shalom, Mashlomech, and Mashlom Ha to all you folks. Actually, according to Wiki Translate, Mashlomech to men and Mashlom Ha to women literally translate to How's the well-being? When you translate that into Australian, it becomes, How's the serenity?